Okay. I was, uh, I was just told forcibly uh, by my wife to hurry up and get up there. It's at zero. Everyone's waiting. <laughs> so I uh, had to run up here and get ready for everyone. Uh, we're going to start this morning. Whoops. We're going to start if I can get my tablet to turn on. Here we go. There we go. We're going to start with a, uh, a video. Now, I thought this video was of a rather famous animal, but so far, no one who has seen a part of the video or who have said this, this animal, it's not a person, this animal's name, has even heard of this animal. So maybe you're just not as involved in the famous animals of the world as I am, uh, but you will be after uh, this video. You'll meet someone very cool. Coco, the beloved gorilla known for her warm personality and sign language skills, has died at the age of 46. She graced the cover of National Geographic twice. She was friends with Mr. Rogers. Love you. Oh, it's that. Oh. Love you, visit love. Oh. Well, that was very nice. Thank you, Coco. And Robin Williams called meeting her a mind-altering experience. Tickle, you tickle, tickle. Coco rose to fame in the early 1970s when an animal psychologist by the name of Francine Penny Patterson taught her how to communicate when she was just one year old. Penny would make the sign for drink and then help Coco do the same. vocabulary started with simple words. If you watch Coco closely, she's learning to put her fingertips to her mouth to sign eat. And her fingertips together to sign more. Coco stunned the world when butterfly was added to her terminology, a complicated word for gorillas to learn because it involves the difficult maneuver of interlocking their small thumbs. Butterfly sign, my butterfly sign was crappy here. Hold on on that. You can do it. Yeah! Coco went on to sign over 1,000 words. She could understand about 2,000 words of spoken English, showing an impressive range of both emotional and cognitive abilities. Coco was also known for her love of cats. She got her first kitten on her birthday in 1984. The reason that it so it stands out in people's memories is because there's an emotional surprise there. There's a giant gorilla with a tiny, tiny, tiny helpless kitten and being gentle and loving toward that kitten. She adopted a trio of kittens later in life, surprising everyone with her nurturing skills. Her life on Earth was extraordinary, one that taught humans about empathy beyond the human race one that will touch audiences and warm hearts forever. So that was Coco the Gorilla. Has anybody ever heard of Coco? Okay, there's a few. Okay, good, there is a few people. I thought maybe I was just weird and weirdly involved in the lives of gorillas. Um, Coco the Gorilla, that is a really short but very cool introduction into who Coco was. Now there's a great documentary on her and all the things that uh, she could do. Uh, but did you catch what the narrator said about uh, Coco's language skills? Coco could 
uh, sign over a thousand words. So she knew over a thousand words to sign, which is amazing. She understood over 2,000 English spoken words. So you could speak to Coco and she would understand what you were saying. She understood complex emotions. You might not have caught it there, but she had a, uh, a cloth and she had wrapped it in her arms and she had signed baby. Uh, she was able to express her sadness after she watched a really sad movie. She watched a really sad movie and said that she was hurting in her heart. And when she had the baby, she expressed, or when she had signed that baby, she expressed that she would desire to have a baby of her own. And she was sad that she didn't have her own baby. But my favorite thing about Coco is not in this video. My very favorite thing about Coco is something else she picked up from movies. Now, movies is where she got to know Mr. Rogers and where she knew Robin Williams. When Robin Williams came, she was so embarrassed uh, or, or, I guess, nervous that she didn't talk to him. She actually went to her collection and started pulling off all the movies that had Robin Williams in it. So she learned from movies. And one thing that she learned was she had those kittens, as you, as you saw. She had a bunch of kittens. She one time got a little upset, and she ripped the steel sink in her room off the wall. She ripped it off the wall and shattered it. And when her handler said, what happened? She turned to the kitten and said, the cat did it. <laughs> she had learned to lie. Coco the gorilla had learned all of these things. She had learned emotion. She had learned language. She had even learned the very human thing of lying, all by imitating those around her, all by imitating the people and the experiences that she had had. And this is kind of how humans learn, isn't it? If you've ever had a baby or you've ever been involved with children, you know that children imitate those around them. Children imitate their parents or they imitate their friends when they're a little bit older or they imitate their caretakers. Children learn by imitating. Uh, and I'm sure we've had all, all had experiences with this, good but also bad. Uh, I was reading about a British girl uh, she, well, I should say, a girl with a British accent. Uh, and her friends known this girl for years, and her friends one, one year came over, or one day came over and met her parents, and neither one of her parents had a British accent. And so her friends asked, well, were you adopted? Like, why do you have an accent, but your parents don't? And she said, no, I wasn't adopted. Um, when I was a kid, my parents thought it would be funny to talk in a British accent whenever they were around me and see if I picked it up, and I did. So now the daughter has a British accent, but neither of the parents are British. They had faked it based off what they saw in movies. Kids learn by imitating us. I know one day my brother will repay me for some amazing things I have taught his daughter. Uh, I think specifically of my youngest niece, River, who at her last birthday party, they had a pinata. Uh, and this pinata, as you know, if you've ever used a pinata, you break it open and there's candy. So she had broken it open, and she was getting candy, but she would only pick up one or two things and then bring it back and sit down. And I thought, that's not how you do a pinata. Let me show you. So I taught her to take the candy, and she was wearing overalls, and to just stuff all the candy in her overalls, to hide it in pockets, in her shirt, wherever she could stuff this candy. It was way more convenient. She had much more candy. I thought, this is hilarious because she was filling her pockets, her clothes, everything with massive amounts of candy. I thought it was hilarious until my brother told me one night at dinner, my niece was with my parents and she didn't want the food they were having. She said, no, I don't want that, Grandma. 
And my mom said, well, too bad, that's all you're getting. And my niece reached down her shirt and pulled out a slice of pizza. (laughs) And no one knows where this pizza came from. It had been days since they had pizza. She still hides food all over the house. My brother thanks me because he was cleaning up her uh, sock drawer and found about 15 candy bars, each with about one or two bites on them, and then wrapped up nicely and hidden. So I'm sure my brother will one day repay me for this wonderful gift and teach my children some very amazing things. Uh, But kids are great because they actively imitate the people around them. They actively imitate us. They know that if they want to figure out how to walk, they would walk, walk best by imitating those that walk around them. They learn to crawl because that's how they get there. They learn to speak by imitating our speech. That's why a lot of uh, early childhood educators will say that you shouldn't t- speak to babies in baby talk, but you should speak in English, just regular spoken English because that is what they will pick up. So kids inherently know that if they want to grow in this life thing, They imitate us. But it doesn't just stop at kids, does it? It doesn't just stop at children. It it continues on into adulthood. Uh, I spent some time in the trades before I quit to do this ministry thing. So I did an apprenticeship as a laborer and an apprenticeship as a carpenter. And in the trades, I know many people in this uh, church have experience in the trades, but in the trades, I'm sure you had the experience of imitation. The learning experience was watch what I do then I'll do it with you and watch while you do it. We'll do it together. And then you do it. I'll watch to make sure you've done it right. And then you do it and teach someone else. You go from watching them to learning to doing it yourself to teaching others. The trades aren't the only adult thing where you learn by imitation. Uh, I love this idea of teacher's college. This is like a hilarious thing in my head because teacher's college just seems kind of funny because... You, you go and you get taught, and then you graduate from school, and you go to another school, which is teacher's college, and you get taught by teachers how to be a teacher, and then all of a sudden you start teaching others who may then go on to be a school of teacher's college where they then teach others. It's this great idea that you're taught your whole life, and then all of a sudden you start teaching. It's just this weird thing. You have to teach someone how to teach, but it's true. We don't stop this process of imitation just as we're kids. We continue this process of imitation as we get older. We see this played out in scripture too. I'm gonna read Ephesians 5 today. We're in the book of Ephesians still. We have this week and next week. And uh, this week we're in Ephesians 5 and there's two big chunks in Ephesians 5. Uh, The first deals with what we're gonna look at today and the next part deals with husbands and wives. And I thought I've been married less than a year. I don't know anything yet. So I won't speak about husbands and wives. So we're gonna look at that first chunk. And I'm gonna just read Ephesians 1 and 2 for you. And so it says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's the uh, English Standard Version. I'm going to read the message translation because the message just takes it and goes a little bit deeper but adds a little bit to it. So the message translation of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, watch what God does and then you do it like children who learn their proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is he loves you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ has loved us. His love was not cautious, but was extravagant. He didn't love us in order to get something back from us, 
but he loved us in order to give everything of himself to us. So love like that. The message gets a little bit more detailed there, and I like that. But the idea is that Paul makes it very clear, something that I think in churches we have made very confusing. I think we have made it a little bit harder to answer the question, how do you be a Christian? How do you be a good Christian? Or even simpler, what does it mean to be Christian? I think churches, sometimes we've made that answer a little more complex, but Paul makes it really clear here because he says, just imitate Jesus. If you want to do this faith thing, just imitate Jesus. Just like children imitate their parents, imitate Jesus. If you've had kids, you know that your kids will imitate you good or bad. And so you try your very best to live a good life around your children. One that you'd be really happy if your children grew up and imitated because you want to set that good example. You want your kids to have a good role model to imitate. That's why a lot of parents are concerned about who their kids hang out with. Who are my kids' friends? Because that's where they learn from. So you want your kids to have a good role model because you want them to learn to live that good life. And it's not always easy as a parent, though, to be a good role model, is it? Has everyone had to say the words to their child, uh, do as I say, not as I do, right? When you're caught in something that you've told your child not to do and then you're doing. Well, dad, you said I can't have cookies after dinner, but I'm seeing you are having cookies after dinner and you're caught in this, right, they imitate us. They learn from us. It's not easy to be a perfect example for your kids. I remember one time I was at lunch with my godson and my best friend and uh, he had dropped his toy on the ground, and he was maybe just under three. And she said, well, can you grab that? Because her hands were full. And I said, okay. So we're at lunch, and it was Montana's. If you've ever been to Montana's, you know they have very thick, hard wood tables. And so I bent over very quickly to grab it, and I hit my head really hard off the corner of the table. And all too easily, a four-letter curse word, which I shan't repeat here in church, came quickly out of my mouth. And though the words had barely passed my lips before my three-year-old godson repeated it right out loud back to us. It happens. We fail as role models sometimes. We fail as examples. We're unable to live the perfect example that we really wish we could live, especially for our children. My dad doesn't have the most patience ever. If you've met my dad, you know he's not exactly the most patient man in the world. And growing up, I learned that wonderful lack of patience from him. Now, as I'm older, I, I recognize that I don't have patience, and so I try. But when I was a kid, I just saw what my dad did, and I imitated it. And such is the downside of imitation, isn't it? When we imitate, we have the capability of imitating the wrong thing. We imitate something that may not be the perfect example. But see, what Paul is implying is Paul is saying there is one person who is the perfect example. There is one person who we should be able to imitate every single thing they did. There is one man who lived an absolutely perfect life that is completely worth us trying to imitate. And that man was Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus did not sin, not even once. Jesus did everything perfectly, and Paul says here, Jesus loved perfectly. 
We've talked the last few weeks about love as we've been in Ephesians. We've talked about being rooted and grounded in Jesus, which is rooted and grounded in love. We've talked about being united together as believers, as a community, by love. We've talked about encouragement and speaking words of love. We've seen what Paul has to say about all that, and it kind of culminates here with him saying, and if you want to do all these things, the perfect example of perfect love is Jesus. Jesus loved us perfectly. God loves us perfectly. See, God's love wasn't timid. God's love wasn't afraid to be shown. No, God showed his love for us over and over and over in some of the most extravagant and beautiful ways. One amazing example of God's love for us being over-the-top extravagant is fall. We look outside and you see leaves, right? And I'm, anytime I drive anywhere with my wife, I'm filled with, oh, look at that tree. Like, that tree is beautiful. My wife loves fall trees. I look at it like it's brown, like it's a brown tree. But fall trees are beautiful, aren't they? Even just this morning, I was in the kids' zone with Emily, and someone walked in and said, what a beautiful fall view you have outside. And if you think about the idea of fall and it being beautiful, it's kind of weird, because fall is simply leaves dying. Leaves are falling off the tree and they're dying. The tree is shedding things, being like, well, I've got to conserve, so see you later, leaves, I don't need you. And it literally just says, they're dying. It's like God came up with this idea and said, once a year, all the trees, they're gonna shed their leaves, they're gonna fall off and die as the tree prepares for winter. And God said, but in that process, I'm gonna make it beautiful. In that process, I'm gonna make it extravagant and gorgeous because I just want my people to be taken aback by the beauty of my creation. God made such a simple process breathtaking for us. That's how much he loves us, that he put that much care and creativity into something so simple and small. God loves us so much that there is no such thing as trivial in creation. But the even more and even obvious example of God's perfect love is Jesus. God sent his only son to die the most horrid death on the cross for you and for I. God wasn't cautious here. God didn't send Jesus and say, hey, be careful, those guys down there are a bunch of jerks and they're gonna try to do something terrible to you. He sent him knowing this was gonna happen. Jesus came knowing this was exactly the end he was aiming for. Jesus displayed the ultimate sacrifice, which was death on a cross for each of us. But the amazing thing is that he did this before you and I loved him. He did all of this before we said we loved him back. Jesus said, I love you and I'm going to die for you even though we hadn't even decided if we loved him back yet. We had no idea. Jesus didn't love us uh, and display that love by dying on a cross. He didn't do that expecting something back. He didn't say, I'm gonna do this, but you owe me. You have to give me blank. He didn't do that. He simply went and he died on a cross willingly because there is nothing we can give him in return that is worthy of that. There is nothing we can give back to Jesus that says, I am worthy of you doing that for me. And that's the point, that God did it anyway. God sent Jesus anyway. Jesus went and died willingly anyway, knowing that we could never repay him for that. 
because that's the kind of love that we are called to imitate. That's the kind of self-sacrificing love, the kind that says, I love you first, and I love you fully and completely without any conditions, and I'm willing to give everything for you, and I'm willing to do it all without ever expecting anything in return. And that is not an easy thing, is it? To love someone in that way. We struggle with that. It might be easy to do for your children. It might be easy to say, I'm willing to do anything for you and give it all to you. And even if you misbehave and don't show me you love me, I'll do it because you're my children. It might be easy to do as a parent, but I know it's not easy to do for a stranger. And I know it's not easy to do for someone who doesn't even like you. But that's what we're called to. That kind of love is a kind of love that forgives. That kind of love is a kind of love that necessitates forgiveness. It will lead to forgiveness. It's easy to forgive someone they called us or when they've caused us a small hurt, isn't it? When it's a small offense, it's easy to let that go. You know, if I forget to do the laundry, my wife has said, while I'm at work, can you please fold the laundry? And, and she comes home and I did not fold the laundry. She will probably be annoyed with me for, you know, 10 minutes, uh, a little frustrated. Uh, and then if I apologize and I say, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'll do it right now, I, she'll probably be very quick to forgive me and the offense will be let go and, and I'll be forgiven. It's easy to, to forgive something like that. Or perhaps uh, Pastor Zach and I are having a discussion in the, arg- or in the office and it turns a little heated and I say something a little short with him or I say something a little snappy with him, uh, a little curt. And maybe later in the day I, I call him and I say, you know what, Zach, I apologize. I didn't get a lot of sleep. I hadn't had a coffee. Um, you know, sorry for being a jerk. And I'm sure Pastor Zach will immediately go, ah, it's okay, forgiven. You know, hurt, forgiven, it's okay. And, and it's easy to do that when it's a small offense. But what about those deep, deep wounds? What about those ones that cut to your very soul, that cut to the very depths of your heart? What about those offenses or those hurts that hurt so bad you don't even want to talk about, that you don't like to bring up? What about those traumas that shaped us and formed us? What about the father or the mother who walked out on their kids and years later returns. Is that easy to forgive? What about the husband or the wife who's had an affair? Is that hurt easy to forgive? What about the coworker who stole your promotion from you through lies and has risen to the top of the corporate ladder with success and money and wealth and fame while you struggle to make your monthly bills and to struggle to make your ends meet? Does that hurt easy to forgive? See, God loves us so much that for him, those are all easy to forgive. For him, all these offenses, he forgives instantly. Jesus was hanging on a cross. He had been beaten, he had been tortured, he had been ridiculed and humiliated by all the people that he came to save. And as he's hanging there dying, he's breathing his last breaths, And what words come out of his mouth? He says, Father, forgive them. In the most loving act anyone could ever do for us, the most loving, self-sacrificing thing that anyone has ever done for you or for I, the only person who's lived perfect as he's dying, he says, forgive them to the people that are hanging him on that cross. See, that's the kind of forgiveness we're called to. 
That's the kind of love that leads to forgiveness that we are called to, and that is the kind of forgiveness that is the hardest for us to do. It is hard to offer that kind of forgiveness, but this is the kind of forgiveness that we must do. If we truly want to be imitators of Christ, if we truly want to imitate Jesus and his love, then we imitate Jesus that as he is dying for those that put him there, he offers forgiveness. That's the kind of imitation Paul calls us to. My older brother and I don't talk. My older brother and I haven't talked in years. It's probably been five years since I've had a conversation with him. He doesn't talk to anyone in my family, not my parents, my other brother, my sister. No one has contact with him. None of us were invited to his wedding. None of us were invited to his baby announcement. He didn't come to any of our weddings. He has lied and stole stolen and abused all of my family for many years, taking thousands of dollars. I hadn't seen my brother for four years. I saw him this past Christmas. I hadn't seen him even in four years because the last time I saw him, he stole thousands of dollars from me and tried to get me fired and robbed my house. I had given him a house in my, or a room in my house after he came home from the war, and this is how we returned that favor. And I hadn't seen him for years, but last Christmas he showed up and he was at our family Christmas, and I thought, I'll offer a piece, and I, and I gave him a bottle of wine as a Christmas gift, and that resulted in him assaulting me in front of my entire family, and my little brother had to step in and stop this from happening, and my older brother has never once apologized for any of these things to me or to my family, and to this day, he still blames me in his head for everything, for all of this. I don't say any of this to judge my brother. I say that this is the kind of forgiveness I'm called to forgive. This is the kind of deep wound that we are called to let go of. We are called to let go of our anger and our bitterness and forgive that kind of an offense. I'm called to imitate Jesus, to imitate the love that sent him to die on a cross. I'm called to imitate that kind of love. That kind of love forgives my brother instantly. I'm called to love and forgive him without ever expecting that he will love me back. I'm called to say, you're forgiven without ever expecting that he will even like me back. It would be so easy for me to forgive my brother for those offenses if I knew he was sorry and if I knew he was apologetic and if he came to me one day and said, you know what, what an idiot I've been, I'm sorry. I could forgive him like that and I would embrace him and that would be easy, but he's not sorry and he's not apologetic. And so forgiving him is hard. But this is the point Paul is making, is that we are called to forgive that kind of an offense because Jesus forgave that kind of an offense. That means we forgive and we love without expecting anything in return. It means we forgive and love without ever expecting that this will somehow fix my relationship or that somehow this will improve everything and he will love and forgive me back. I'm called to forgive him without any of that expectation. That's the kind of extravagant love we are called to imitate as Christians, but also as a church. As a church, as a family, we are called to imitate that kind of love. This kind of on the cross forgiveness. This church has many hurts in our past. Some of these church came from last year. Some of these hurts resulted last year. And last year there was a big fight and there is still hurt on every side of that. There is still hurt all around on that. 
But we are called to forgive those people who hurt us. We are called to right now forgive them and let go. And they're called to forgive us too. And one day perhaps they will. But we're called to forgive them without ever expecting that they will. We're called to forgive them without implying that, hey, I'm forgiving you, so you forgive me, right? And hope it's reciprocated. No, we're called to forgive unconditionally. And we're called to actually forgive them too. Not just say the words like, yes, I've of course forgiven them. But deep down inside, we still hold anger and resentment and bitterness. No, we're called to let that go. We're called to let all of it go and simply love and simply forgive. This church has pain that goes back farther than last year, though. This church has pain that perhaps goes back five years to words that were spoken angrily in the parking lot or words that were spoken angrily in the foyer after the service to insults hurled at one another in business meetings when we don't agree about simple things. We're holding on to hurts from five years ago. Some of our hurts go back 10 years even to pastors that have left, to, to things that have caused some sort of pain or some sort of resentment in our hearts. And we have pain that still goes back even 20 and 25 years. And all of that, every one of those, we're called to forgive. We're called to let it go, to let go of the anger, let go of the bitterness, let it out of your heart, Give it all to Jesus and say, I forgive you. Because here's the thing, is how can we ever expect those outside the church to want to be part of this thing if we can't even forgive those who also love Jesus, those who also are working towards the exact same thing? If we can't love other Christians, how can we ever expect non-Christians to feel loved by us? I know of pastors in this very city who hate one another and won't have lunch with one another. I know of pastors that are bitter towards other churches' success, that hold resentment at other pastors over things they've done. I know of a church on the other side of Cambridge, one that we have had a previous relationship with, a loving relationship with, a working relationship with, one that I actually worked at for three years before coming here. And I know that at that church, when I took this position of youth pastor at Avenue Road, I realized very quickly that this on-the-surface love that Avenue Road and King Street shared was just that. It was on the surface. Because deep down, there was anger. And when I started to work at both churches, that anger and that bitterness and that resentment towards the other churches came out. And it came out all over the place. All of this comes from a lack of forgiveness, a lack of love. All of this results from offenses that were caused 20, 10, 15, 25, however many years ago. From scars that go deep and did really hurt us, and I'm not trying to trivialize those things, I know those wounds went deep, and I'm, I'm acknowledging that that hurt, but at the same time, we're called to forgive that. We're called to let it go. We're called to move past that bitterness and to give that to Jesus. Because it didn't matter to Jesus who was right or wrong in a situation. Jesus died for us while we were still in the wrong. The point is that we have to let go of these hurts. We have to let go of our anger and our bitterness. One of the most amazing things is that the people that have joined our church recently, when they've said, well, why did you join? 
Well, Lucas, when I walked in, people were so friendly and I just felt like I was loved. That's what this church needs to be known for. We need to be known so that when people walk in the door, they sense an atmosphere of love. They sense that they are truly loved. And if we're holding on to our anger, holding on to our bitterness and our resentment at people and things that have happened in our past, then we can't be healthy. And we won't be known as that church. We've got to let go of that anger and that bitterness. We have to choose to love them like Jesus loved us. A love that forgives without expectation. A love that forgives without ever expecting them to say sorry or to acknowledge that they were in the wrong. We have to forgive. And I bring up this church that I used to work for because I'm going to announce right now that on November 10th, I've invited King Street Baptist Church here. I've invited its members, its pastors, its deacons to come here on November 10th at 6 p.m. for a dinner. This will be a potluck dinner between our church and their church. I'm inviting every single person here, whether you've even heard of King Street or not, whether you have any hurts or offenses, I'm inviting every single person here to come to that dinner for a time of restoration and forgiveness. It doesn't matter if your anger is at King Street or your anger is at people who left last year or your anger is at someone who hurt you when you were just a child. We want to let that go on November 10th. We want to let all of that anger and that bitterness go. We're going to offer it all to Jesus and choose to forgive. Choose to forgive those very hard offenses, the ones that maybe we've been struggling to forgive for 10 or 15 years. I'm inviting us all to be a part of a night of restoration, a night where we can imitate Jesus, a night where we can imitate his love and his forgiveness. And I know this will not be easy. I know that right now some people are saying, no way, I will not be there. I cannot forgive this person or that person for something they said or did. And I know that there are people who have wronged us harshly and deeply. We have to forgive that. We have to learn to let go. We need to let our bitterness go so we can be consumed by love. I know that there are people right now at King Street, as Pastor Victor announces this exact same thing, I know there are people sitting there that say, I will not go there. I will not be part of this thing at Avenue Road. I know that there are people right now who hold bitterness and anger at myself, at the board, and members of this church. And I also know that their pastor right now is encouraging them to let go and to forgive that bitterness, to let go and to love. I know right now some of our hairs may already be standing up and we may be uneasy about this. So what I wanna ask is that you would take a second to dig deep, to remember Jesus was hanging on a cross and he thought of all the things you've done in your life and he did it anyways. He was hanging on a cross and he said the words, Father, forgive them. He didn't say forgive them as long as they do blank. He simply said forgive them. So do we have the right to withhold forgiveness from others? Jesus doesn't withhold it from us, but do we think we have the right to withhold forgiveness? I'm going to end in prayer in a minute, but what I'm going to say is that if some of us are struggling right now with either with this idea of forgiving and letting go on November 10th with King Street, if we're struggling with that idea, or perhaps you're struggling with forgiving someone who wounded you when you were a kid, 
Or perhaps you're struggling with forgiving someone who left last year and said some angry things, or five years ago, or 10 years ago, or whatever it is. If right now you're sitting there, I am struggling with this idea of a forgiveness dinner, Lucas. I'm really struggling. What I would ask is that after the last song, I'm asking Pastor Zach, and I would ask if Shirley would come forward as well. And I would ask if you are struggling, come forward after the service. Come to the front and lay your concerns with me. Lay your concerns with Pastor Zach. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Come up and yell at us if that's what you need to do. If you need to come up and yell at us and tell us how stupid this idea is and get some of that anger out, that's fine. We will take that too. But come up and let's lay our bitterness and our anger. Let's let it go and let's work towards a church that is forgiving, a church that is loving, a church that truly loves and imitates Jesus. A church that forgives those who may never forgive us back. Let us be imitators of the love of Jesus Christ, the love that paid it all without ever expecting a return. Let us lead this radical love that goes all throughout the city of Cambridge and beyond. Let our love overflow so others may see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. God, thank you that, Jesus, you died for us on the cross while we were still sinners. You died. Lord, you allowed yourself to be put on a cross while we had still not said we love you, while we had still not yet repented of the terrible things we've done. Lord, we acknowledge that each of us here has hurt others badly. Lord, at some point in our lives, we have wounded others deeply. So, Lord, forgive us hurting them. But Father, for those people that have wounded us, for those people that have scarred us deeply, for those people that right now we are struggling to even consider forgiving, Lord, teach us to forgive. Lord, challenge us, shape us, break down barriers, break down pride, break down whatever is inside us that is stopping us from forgiving those people. And Lord, let us be a congregation, a family, a church that forgives Let us be a people that forgive unconditionally, Lord, without expecting anything back. Lord, let us be imitators of your love, a self-sacrificing, a forgiving love. Let us be known for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.